From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. There are more than 2 million people incarcerated in the United States. Less than 13% have attended college. A new PBS documentary series spent four years following student inmates pursuing associate and bachelor's degrees through the Bard Prison Initiative, or BPI, run by Bard College and prisons across New York State. BPI aims to be as rigorous as other colleges and universities. We are not a part of the prison system. We are a college who happens to have classes inside a prison. College Behind Bars comes out on GPB-TV on November 25th. Lynn Novick directed the four-part series. Lynn, welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Sarah Botstein is producer for College Behind Bars. Sarah, thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Also with me, two former BPI students, graduates, by the way, featured in the documentary, Daiwan Tetro, who now works as a government affairs and advocate officer for BPI. Daiwan, thank you for being here. Very nice to be here this morning. And Wes Keynes, who was part of the first cohort of BPI students and is now a public defender in the Bronx. Hello, Wes. Hello. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you all for being here. It is such an extraordinary documentary. And Lynn, I know you've worked on several sprawling historic documentaries with Ken Burns, but this is very contemporary. What was the draw for you in this subject? Yeah, for Sarah and me, um, it was an opportunity to tell a story in a different kind of way than the films we've made with Ken, like the Vietnam War, Prohibition, the war to follow a story that was happening in real time in front of us and to share with the world the extraordinary lives and experiences of students in the Bard Prison Initiative, incarcerated students in New York State who are working to get college degrees in one of the most rigorous programs in the country. Yeah, and, and I'm wondering how you built trust inside of the relationships with the BPI students, with facilities themselves. Sarah, how did that happen? It took us a long time to get permission from the state of New York and from the Department of Corrections. And then we took it really seriously that we were filming mostly in maximum security prisons. We needed their help and cooperation to make the film. And so that okay. for us. But I think, you know, for all the films that we make and certainly for anyone's story that we're asking them to share not only with us, but potentially millions of people. That is a relationship that builds over time, that requires a lot of care and attention and trust and a two-way conversation. And Lynn and I love that aspect of our work, and we take it really, really seriously. So, Daiwan, for you, what was it like to have this film crew drop in on you for four years? Well, I would say that was very dynamic because, you know, you couldn't under like normal circumstances, communicate with Lynn and Sarah, right? They couldn't call us or write us and tell us filmmakers doing justice to topics. And so we decided that, yeah, we're going to make this film with them. And it's amazing. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so many prison documentaries that we see, it's like, what are you in for? You know, how, what, how much time are you doing? That doesn't come out in the lead, let's say it that way. Uh, other things are revealed throughout the documentary. But it's another way of approaching somebody who is incarcerated. And I'm wondering for you, Wes, what that meant, that you weren't leading with, you know, the worst thing that you've done, basically. I, I think that said everything. Um, to Daiwan's point, you know, the, the popular conception of the person who's incarcerated is someone who is unredeemable, someone who is animalistic, someone who's not worthy of an opportunity like this to be a part of a, you know, rigorous liberal arts educational program while incarcerated. So it was not as heavy a lift as one may think to participate in this process and to want to reframe 
the discussion around who it is that we incarcerate. Mm -hmm. Well, that comes clear as the hours evolve. Uh, Definitely questions about the criminal justice system are underlying the whole process here. But College Behind Bars, and you just mentioned it, Wes, that it's a rigorous program. This is something that we hear over and over again. So what other similar programs exist across the country? So I, I think, you know, the sad reality here is that the 1994 crime bill eviscerated college and prison. We went overnight, literally, from having about 800 programs to less than 10. And so at BPI, over the past 20 years, we've refined our educational model. Now we've outsourced that to about 15 colleges and universities in 13 states. Yale, Notre Dame, Grinnell, Goucher have programs similar to ours or part of our um, National Consortium of the Liberal Arts. But also under President Obama, there was a second chance Pell program opened up. So you're starting to see more college in prison and you're starting to see it come back. And a lot of lawmakers on Capitol Hill regret the decision that they made around the crime bill in respect to college and prison. Yeah, this is something that we see in the film that Clinton administration decision to whittle away at this. And there's a lot of there's a lot of controversy about it still. You know, the idea that I mean, I went to a state school. You basically went to a better school than I did through Bard. You know, there's resentment. And you see it also in the dynamic with the CEOs, the correctional officers. I'm wondering how that played out for you. The idea that you're getting educated in this prestigious program. They're not. I think that, you know, whenever we're having this conversation, it's not one conversation. It's two conversations, and it's happening at two different levels. We have the political economic kind of level of this where the model in this country has been to build prison in rural districts as a way to create jobs for filling farm economies, right? And so there's tension there around what prisons are for and around closing them and around how we do reforms in this country. But on the interpersonal level, inside the prison, You had guards who were largely supportive of what we did in the vast majority of the administrators. Right. And from the governor on down in New York state, love this program and see its value. Lynn Novick, she's director, and Sarah Botstein is with us, producer of the new PBS documentary series, College Behind Bars. Also joining us, Daiwan Tetro and Wes Keynes. They are two of the students who are featured in the film. Now, of course, there are uh, there's a lot of stress on the idea that this is Once you close that door in the classroom, this is college. This is a college class. But, of course, there are some differences in the BPI education and education of students on Bard's campus. There's a conversation with an MIT and Bard professor who shared about the classroom setup at Bard. There are things that, you know, I take for granted um, when I'm teaching at MIT um, that I can just do that I can't do here. The mixed media that you'll use inside a classroom at an elite institution that I can't reproduce here. Here, you go back to a more basic teaching structure. But there are also a lot of institutional distractions like the daily count, which rounds up inmates five times a day. How do, how do you manage those kind of challenges? I don't know, Daiwan or, or Wes, if you want to pick up on that. You know, I, I think that first and foremost, if people see this documentary and we hear kind of these um, comments around education in prison, we'll see people say, well, they have a captive audience. And I think it is opposite <clears throat> from that reality. 
doing college in prison with a constant distractions is not easy. You know, stress is embedded with the walls. Things can change in the blink of an eye. You know, you could be sitting in class in the next minute that you know you're back in your cell. But, you know, as Lynn just said, and as Professor Wilder makes the point in the program, we engage very deeply with the subject. And when we walk in them classrooms, we are not prisoners. We are students. Mm. And we see a lot of examples of how different students organize their individual spaces, their daily schedule. Wondering for you, Wes, what kind of systems did you come up with for yourself to manage these kind of distractions? I mean, the distractions are as um, Daiwan articulated, but I don't necessarily view those distractions as very different from someone who is working outside and going to school. Um, there are differences, of course, in that you don't have your liberty and at any given moment, your body could be placed in a different setting away from the classroom setting. So in that regard, there are distinctions. But as far as how I organized myself, I did most of my studying at night mm -hmm. where it was more quiet. Um, I often tell people there are two things that you never find in prisons. That's total silence and total darkness. Mm. Um, but there is a, a definitely a, a, a hushed at night that allows for, you know, studying and, and reading and writing. Um, that was my system. So during the day, I would work you know our college program was voluntary which is important to understand we had to maintain you know program hours within the facility so we all worked we all worked in different areas of the prison and then our free time was when we volunteered to be in classes and when we did our coursework mm -hmm. and i'll just add to that that the other people incarcerated with us often accommodated us in ways because of our education that they would not do in other contexts. So, for example, going out to the yard and trying to get a table to study, you know, there were days where no tables were available and people seated us their tables and said, hey, you guys are doing something um, important. Take this table or here, we're going to quiet down for you guys. So it's an amazing experience to see other people not in the program rally around what we do. That's yeah. so interesting to me because I think of the power dynamics inside of a facility like that, you know, that you guys are advancing yourself did that cause any tension with the other inmates? our biggest supporters were our peers huh. who were incarcerated they they understood and understand intimately how our success really was their success and I think that the notion that there are other people in prison who would invest in someone's growth and development is is not really what we would think of on the outside for the people who we incarcerate. We typically think of them as selfish, you know, self-centered individuals. I mean, that's something that the general public just doesn't understand. You mentioned the rigor of the coursework, which brings up a question for me. I mean, I know you had to take general ed courses like a traditional liberal arts education model, but were these courses tailored toward the inmate population? Absolutely not. Okay, everyone's no. shaking their head here. <laughs> Our no. course load was exactly as it is on the campus generally at Annandale. So there's no distinction between 
the education that we receive versus what someone on campus on the outside would receive. Uh, the only and, thing I would add to that from what we've heard from professors is that they've often said to us that for teaching inside at BPI, they have to make the class a bit harder and more demanding and more challenging because the students really expect that and challenge them. Wow. So, and what is, what's the experience like for them? What did you hear from them? Because we don't hear that much in the film. Very early on in the program, I, I was fortunate enough to be a part of the first cohort of the program when it was very new, grew very slowly, and the pool of professors went beyond Bard College campus. And that growth happened because of the experience of professors who came in and going back and speaking to their peers about the experience of teaching in a prison. And new professors signed up and came on in awe of the stories that they were hearing about the engagement in the class. So that was how the program grew initially, was because of the experience of the professors who were coming in. The experience of being there was, was worth it. All right, we're going to take a break and be back with Lynn Novick, director, and Sarah Botstein, producer of College Behind Bars. It's a documentary on prison education in New York State. Daiwan Tatro and Wes Keynes, two former students of the Bard Prison Initiative, are featured in the film. The four-part documentary series comes out November 25th on GPB-TV. But before then, GPB is hosting a screening event in Atlanta on Tuesday. That's November the 19th at 7. And there's more information on that at gpb.org slash community. All right, we'll pick up our conversation conversation after the break. Stick around for more on Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, picking up on a conversation about the upcoming PBS documentary series, College Behind Bars, which captured four years of footage from students enrolled in college while incarcerated in New York State. The students featured in this documentary and the program, the BPI or Bard Prison Initiative, wrestle with deep and complex questions about morality and ethics and identity. And I have to admit that while watching it, I found myself surprised at the level of discourse and then feeling guilty about my own surprise. But it is not the image that I had of incarcerated people, certainly. If we look at the data, 68% of incarcerated people lack a high school diploma. And after the 1994 Clinton administration crime bill, federal aid funding prison education programs was slashed to almost nothing. But whereas nearly half of all formerly incarcerated people return to prison within three years, the recidivism rate of students enrolled in college through the Bard Prison Initiative is just 4%. Well, today we're talking to a couple of those students, Daiwan Tatro and Wes Keynes. They're both featured in College Behind Bars, and they're on tour with director Lynn Novick and producer Sarah Botstein, also my guests in the studio. So in some of these scenes, we witness profound discussions about morality and war and crime and repentance. And I wonder for you as students, did you ever have the sense that these academics, you know, professors teaching you couldn't possibly know what they're talking about when it comes to morality and crime and what that looked like for you in the real world? That, that's a great question because I, I, I think the question like presupposes that there's a detachment from the text. And I think part of the reason why the experience of professors in the program and the experience of the students in the program is so rich is because we see ourselves first in the text. 
and we process the work first through the lens of our experiences. And that's our experiences with community, our experiences in the country, our experiences in relation to crime and punishment. And we start there and then we grow out of that. And I think because of that, you know, the, the texts become living, alive, dynamic for us. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's not... It's it's not a dis- detracted or or, or or removed experience in the classroom. It's it's very personal. It's very close, and and it allows for an engagement in a way that a seventeen or eighteen year old, a nineteen twenty year old who is walking onto a college campus doesn't have the same life experience that they can tap into and leverage against the text. I have a vivid memory of watching the students in the first-year seminar, which they do on the Bard campus and in BPI, talking about the Odyssey and the Iliad and remembering my experience as a freshman in college and reading those same texts, and they were just abstractions to me. I did not understand or relate to pretty much anything in them. I was just doing my homework and trying to do what was the teacher or the professor expected in terms of some kind of analysis, but it had no deep resonance for me, and I didn't actually realize that until I observed the BPI students relating to the material in the way that they do in the film. Well, that is something that's also fascinating to me, that, you know, people who are, they finally have a chance to to, to study and engage with this material that Western culture knows, you know, that they never felt included in on some level. Are you able to tell your younger self that? I mean, when you were in high school, did you care about this kind of thing? When you were in middle school, uh, Daiwan, did you care about learning in the same kind of way? So I would say my experience, you know, at Barn and BPI has been radically different from my elementary, middle school graduation. I'm someone who dropped out of school in the ninth grade and didn't really learn the value of education or even what a professor or teacher was until I got to um, BPI. And the just the rigor of the classroom and the high expectations constantly made me want to strive and do more and be a better student. I have a practical question, though. You couldn't use the Internet and you had limited access to any library materials. You had to ask for them in advance. How did you work around that? So, you know, we, as Lynn said, and as Professor Wilder says in the film, we go back to a more basic teacher teaching structure. You know, I had someone at a large foundation having a conversation with them last week, and they were trying to solve the problem of, like, the cost of textbooks. And it was a little strange to me because I said, well, we've solved that at BPI. We just don't use them, right? So we have course readers, and we are giving the material, right? I don't read about Gertz and learn about anthropology from a um, textbook. I read the interpretation of cultures, right? And that allows me to delve into the work and figure out what it means. And, you know, you first get in the classroom, you start asking your professor, excuse me, professor, can you answer this question? The professor says, well, what do you think? And then you're like, professor, well, um, can I have a working definition of this concept? And he goes, well, let's see if one of your peers has a, um, a definition for you. So they really require you in Bard 
and builds the confidence in you to think from yourself and to be willing to interpret text and interpret material, to read Bourdieu, to read Foucault, to read Plato and come up with your own understanding and understand how that situates you in the world in respect to other people. So in the same way that the education helps you zoom in and situate yourself, it also helps you zoom out and see the big picture. And, and I would have to say, you know, as a parent of children who went to college while we were making the film, it's all too easy to go online and not do research, but just look up Spark Notes or other people's papers or, you know, the Internet and everything that's available doesn't necessarily make you more informed or a better student or thinker. You well, know, you're making, oh, sorry, Don I would say I'm often kind of aghast when people tell me that they don't read the entire book. I, I tend to have the opposite problem. You know, friends I have are in graduate school or at college, and they say to me, well, no, you just read the beginning, you read the middle, and you read the end. And I'm like, well, once I pick up a book, I feel committed to it, whether I like it or not. And it's just the level of rigor and thoroughness that we learned at Bard. Daiwan, you're reminding me of a conversation in the documentary. This BPI program is in six schools in New York State. One is at Taconic Women's Prison. And there's this conversation there with a group of women about what they learned in history class. Here's one of the students, Anna Paula Montero. I think we were all kind of taught to, like, really admire the Constitution and the framers and stuff. And now we're kind of learning how that affected just common people back in the day. We never, I never yeah. really thought about that. I just thought it was this great thing and America became democratic. But from the perspectives that we're learning this now, you realize that's not really the case. We're hearing this development of critical thinking skills, which is what college is supposed to be all about. But it, for me, it, we hear over and over, in fact, the, the founder and executive director of BPI, Max Kenner, says, tell students at orientation, when the door closes, you're in Bard College. It seems really impossible to imagine that you could leave behind all of the other dynamics of what's going on. How did, how did, you, how did you do that? How did you compartmentalize that? I don't think you ever compartmentalize, right? I am one whole person. I'm constantly dealing with the entirety of my being. And so, but when you get into Bard, especially in the prison context, it gives you the option if I'm going to wake up every day and be a student and strive for academic excellence and greatness, or am I going to be a prisoner, right? And I could choose not to be a prisoner because I had a different type of opportunity open to me. That's not true to everyone in prison. We were students and we took the education very, very seriously. You know, I'm a math major. I was never good at math as a younger man. And I ended up writing a math senior project on applied mathematics and biology, specifically modeling cancer cell proliferation. That is not something I ever thought I would do. I never thought I'd be sitting down writing a 34, 40-page senior thesis with mixed differential equations and calculus, right? But You've already lost it. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have already lost me. I, I, I mean, I just want to add that I don't want to exceptionalize people in prison who are accessing this education. As a parent who goes to work, when you get to work and have to focus on your work, are you not a parent? I mean, we we occupy various spaces simultaneously. So the notion that 
you know, we're exceptionalized that we walk into a physical room, close a door, and everything else falls away from us, and we have a singular focus. It's just not realistic. It's not realistic in anyone's lives, and it's definitely not realistic in the lives of people who are incarcerated, who are being educated. Yeah, I we mean, navigate, you're right. We're all, we navigate. We're all performing in various yes. different spaces, but yes. I think it was you, Wes, who actually talked about this in the film, that... It's a, it, there, there is a lot of identity, however, you know, identity projected upon you and certainly that you carry around with you. And in fact, I think it is you that, who says that you witnessed other people just surviving, not living, Absolutely. not sort of fully embracing life. So what, what is it that brought you to that place of no longer considering yourself? I am just, you know, just a prisoner, just an inmate. I am something else. What, what did it take for that? Well, I, I, never, I, I never owned that label, first of all. I never accepted that who I was was a singular decision in the past. I never accepted that I was a prisoner I, I, and that's all that I was. And or that was even a dominant self of me. Um, education has always been central in my life. Um, I, I navigate, like you said, various consciousness it, it, simultaneously. We all do. Um, and, and I think that to make exceptional the people in the BPI program or to make exceptional um, people who we didn't have high expectation for who just happened to surprise us in this instant, t to me, misses the point of the fact that we're all capable of this given adequate opportunity to access education. Why is this opportunity taking place in a cage? There are a couple of graduation scenes here that just brought me absolutely to tears. There is so beautiful. Um, Sebastian, Korean-American man, his family comes, you know, and in his, in his culture, many people disown somebody who brings shame upon the family. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And then afterwards, you all have to get strip searched because you've been mixed in with uh, outside population. So, yes. Identity comes from within, but there are some realities of confronting it on the outside. That the discussions about that are really interesting, and I'm, I'm interested in hearing how you all navigated that with each other. You know, this struggle to be both in your own head and free intellectually, but your liberty was compromised, and your your sense of agency on the outside. I mean, the, the early development of the program, we had to build collegiality. And part of how we did that as the first group of men in the program was that we were always our own reality checkers so that when we weren't in a classroom, we were constantly engaging in the classroom subject matter. And we would always remind ourselves that we're navigating a new space and to really embrace that space and to do well in that space, we had to own it. So that required us to elevate our discourse, to look at the ways in which we could stretch the classroom into other areas of the prison. Um, and, and so it was, it was a virtual construction and, and it was a collegiate construction that happened intentionally that we had discussions about. Like, what are we gonna do when we walk out of the classroom to keep this going? 
And in some areas of the film, you see the men speaking about reciting, you know, the the the, the, um, the opening to Moby Dick to Moby yeah. Dick. Exactly. And and that was from the beginning that like that experience of of engaging your classmates outside of the classroom, because it's not a singular space. It's not like you walk into a classroom, the door closes and then you leave and the classroom stays behind and, and the work stays behind. It literally is a remaking of a reality that, you know, is in tension with the other reality of, of, of being incarcerated. You really sound like a barred student right now, <laughs> i got to say. I, I, I just wanted to add that for Sarah and me, we, you know, we hadn't made a film like this before. We'd made historical films where we had interviewed either experts or witnesses and then put together archival material with our team and with Ken. And here we were, we sort of didn't quite know what we were doing at the beginning, to be honest. And so we sort of set up our first day of shooting was going to be interviews with some of the students that had agreed to be part of the film. We were going to kind of get them to tell us what's going on today, whatever. And while we were preparing for the quote unquote interview in the other room, some of the students were sitting around the library talking and they were, they had the New Yorker on the table. They were talking about the um, history of tragedy class they were taking and they were talking about um, Oedipus and Othello and what they were, you know, they were just continuing the conversation, as Wes was saying, from the classroom. And we were kind of just hanging there. And we said, wait a minute, this is way more interesting than interviewing someone. So that kind of changed our whole mode of trying to tell the story by trying to capture some of what Wes is describing in the conversations among the students, both the, the, um, the women at the picnic table at Taconic and in the library, a number of conversations with the guys we just would ask them, what do you guys want to talk about? Who should be in the room? And can we bring the camera? Mm -hmm. And we did it periodically, Sarah, yeah. And, and we spent as much time, if not more, with the students in prison. And Wes had gotten out when we started shooting. So we spent a lot of time with Wes early on on the outside without our cameras, doing substantive research, getting to know them, understanding their experience better so that we could be more informed when we did decide to bring the cameras in. And that was an essential component to this. And I actually vividly remember early on Wes telling me about the experience of graduation and being thrust from graduation or a classroom back into a more traditional prison setting and how important and complicated that was. And so I can't possibly understand that. So that's a perfect example of let's put our students in the library and have them tell us what we need to understand about it. Mm -hmm. So that scene actually comes from many different things, as Lynn is saying, and very much because of the generosity that Wes gave us, not only for being in the film, but being an advisor to the project. And as filmmakers, we just realized very early that it was really to try to capture the essence of BPI experience and this culture that these guys are talking about. We had to really just sort of help facilitate a situation where they would speak to each other and not to us. Get and out of the way. Get out of the way, exactly. That's Lynn Novick, director of College Behind Bars. It's a four-part documentary series on prison education in New York State. Also, Sarah Botstein is with us. She's a producer of the film. And Diwan Tatro and Wes Keynes, two former students of the Bard Prison Initiative who are featured in the film. The series comes out November 25th on GPB-TV. And on November 19th, there will be a free screening event in Atlanta, but we want you to sign up. There's a link to register and details at gpb.org slash community. We're going to take a quick break and be back with more on College Behind Bars when On Second Thought continues.
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, continuing a conversation about the new PBS documentary, College Behind Bars. It's a four-part series observing the transformative power of education and the lives of inmates in New York State correctional facilities. And one of the film's highlights is when the BPI debate team goes viral for winning against Harvard University. Here's the story on Good Morning America back in 2015. Three inmates serving time for violent offenses outwitted the Harvard undergrads while debating the rights of immigrants. One of them told the Wall Street Journal, we might not be as naturally rhetorically gifted, but we work really hard. I love that. We have two former students of the program with us today. Daiwan Tetro, who now works with BPI as a government affairs and advancement officer, and Wes Keynes, a public defender in the Bronx, along with College Behind Bars director Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein, producer of the series. In the film, we see moments of great joy, like those debates, but there are also heartbreaking moments of of pain. There's a scene, one student, Rodney, is writing a short story for an assignment, and he uses some profanity and some sexual language that are against the rules at the prison, and is put into solitary confinement for seven days. And I'm just watching it, pulling my hair out, thinking... Somebody do something. He's doing this for an assignment. And I'm wondering for you, Lynn and Sarah, what that experience was like for you watching this happen, knowing that you are not there to be an advocate. Oh, oh, our, we did not see our role as advocating right. for anyone. Absolutely not. We're just there to try to observe and tell the story as it unfolded. So what um, was that absolutely. experience like for you watching the, something that just to me struck me as absolutely unjust? Well, when we started the program, Max Kenner and his colleague Megan Callahan said to us, all kinds of things are going to happen that we can't predict. And I think they were, we, th- we realized later that this is the kind of thing they were talking about. This is not an unusual occurrence in every situation is different. But, um, you know, we just wanted, we just were trying to tell the story and we hoped that he would be able to continue in the program. And then the conversation among the students afterwards is one of the most, I think, important in the film. Yeah. They're reacting to the situation. It was very hard to know what was happening in real time when that happened. So we needed for wait for it to play out and then catch up with it um, from the filmmaking perspective when we could. How about for Bard, Max Kenner and his his staff at BPI? Are there what is their relationship like with the prison system? What kind of conversations can they have on on behalf of the students in that kind of case? They can't operate without the Department of Corrections, um, and they could speak to, or maybe Daiwan can speak to a little bit more. Certainly, we can't. How they, you know, I think the Department of Corrections is in the state of New York is, as Daiwan said earlier, supportive of the program and proud of its twenty year history and its incredible kind of success. Um, but Daiwan, do you want to speak a little bit about? Yeah, you know, by and large, the Department of Corrections supports the program, but how that plays out every day on the ground, the facility can be different from week to week, from month to month, and sometimes just with the win. And the Rodney's situation was very unfortunate. You know, at the end of the day, the Department of Corrections made the right decision and dropped the charges. But I will say that one of the things that Bard has made, you know, part of its mission is not to be a part of the prison system, right? It is a college that operates in prison, right? Other than that, it is not affiliated with DOCS. So when Bard students get into any type of disciplinary disciplinary trouble with the institution, there is no type of reprisal or anything from the college. The college standpoint is that we are in this context 
to educate, and that's what we are here to do. We are not here to judge. We are not here to discipline. We are not here to punish. Actually, we want you to have a totally different type of experience with us and BPI than you have within the prison system. So when them type of things happen, you know, the college is supportive, but again, you know, they're in a position where they're just a college and they have this other disciplinary structure that in some ways is more powerful. So how does BPI change the behavior outside of the classroom? All of a sudden, you know, you go from having kind of nothing to do that you can wake up, go to the yard every day. You can go somewhere, um, sweep the floor, mop the floor, work in the mess hall to having this real opportunity to have a transformative educational experience. And so BPI came in. And I remember my first introduction to the college was 2006, seven. I was sitting in um, Five Points Correctional Facility and I saw a 60 minute segment on the program. And I decided that's what I'm gonna do. Easier said than done. It took me the next six years to get from where I was to BPI, where BPI was. And I got to Bard and I got into the college and it was a really, really, transformative experience for me and I felt really really grateful and really really privileged and so one of the things I used to do is I would spend my summers and my off time out in the yard tutoring other students who wanted to get into the program BPI students and alumni inside the facility usually operate a bunch of different educational courses and programming in the facility for the general population at at large. We act as ambassadors for the program and try to pull people in. We are encouraging and we are examples to them of what they are capable of doing. And we allow people to reimagine themselves. We are a walking argument within them walls for the transformative power of education. That That's how BPI impacts the institutions where it's located is both personal to the individual student who is in BPI having this educational opportunity, but it also impacts the culture of a facility. What was described is by Daiwan is, you know, what happens when you educate or afford a space for people to be educated in a context where the majority of people aren't given that opportunity, well, you have the people who are in the law libraries helping others to research their cases. You have the people who are tutoring, you know, others who are in GED courses or pre-GED courses. You have the people who are working to help elevate writing skills so that opportunities to enter the program is is enhanced. Um, so the culture of the facility is transformed just by virtue of having a college program there and specifically the BPI program. It, it literally ripples out of the classroom into the population generally. The film also shows how the experience of BPI students ripples out into their relationships with their families. I wonder what that experience was like for you two, uh, Daiwan and Wes, going back out into the world with a different sense of what is important to you? So, you know, for me, this is very, very personal. Um, I am the only one in my family who's ever been to college. 
I have an older brother and a younger brother. They have both been to prison. You see some of my younger brother mm -hmm. in the film. We yeah. were incarcerated at the same time. And my experience in prison was radically different from his because I had access to this educational opportunity. So coming back out into the world, I have also had access to different types of opportunities. And that's not because I'm an exceptional person, but because I had an exceptional opportunity. You know, my brother was in a facility where they didn't have any educational access. He was in a facility like like most people, the vast majority of people in this country who doesn't have real meaningful opportunities to change their lives in a way that is going to take them back out into society, prepare to be successful. Right. I leading up to, you know, leaving prison and BPI helps with this because we do a lot on the reentry front. I got out of prison on August 10th of 2017 on August 24th, I was back in college, right? And that's because BPI had put them structures and pathways in place for me to make a seamless transition from one educational context to another. What we see in this country is that we've got 600,000 people reentering society every year, and the vast majority of them are handed a few dollars and a bus ticket and sent back to their community. Yeah. Wes, if you want to pick up on that. Too. Yeah, so yeah. I have two children, Greg and Ashley, and we overlapped in college. <laughs> so in the early part of the BPI program, being part of the first cohort, my children were in junior high and high school. Mm -hmm. And the conversations we had around my ability to be incarcerated and be a student and their experience of struggling with with you know school on the outside i mean it it was a hard argument for them to make that something was too difficult yeah right right and then when my daughter was in college i was also in college so that really enhanced our relationship it really um, allowed us to have discussions, academic discussions, which morphed into personal discussions around our lives and how we engage the, 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 our studies. Um, so I, I think you're correct in that, you know, the experience of a prison classroom in BPI does shatter the walls and, and, and we extended beyond the prisons. We impacted our families and, and we impacted our communities in ways where that cited 60 Minutes piece that Daiwan spoke to himself seeing in another facility and made him say, I want to go to that facility because I want to get into that program. People in my community saw that. And it was helpful for them to speak to their children and community members around like never stopping learning, never giving up, never accepting that where you are today is where you will be tomorrow. And that only happens if you embrace the notion of lifelong learning. What did you learn about learning when you were out in the world, when you were growing up? I think it was you, Daiwan, who talked about you can't afford to feel regret in the neighborhood that you grew up in. I'm just wondering if you could expand upon that because what we're talking about is opportunity and you never had that opportunity when you were in the world. You know, I grew up in a single parent household and some of this is cliche. You know, my dad was a drug addicted ex-Vietnam vet and 
I would go to school every day in credit to my teachers. They were amazing people and were very encouraging. They did not tell me you would never be nothing. You know, they told me like you could be something. You're great. You're smart. But the reality of my life kind of in school and at home were so stark that I could never reconcile the two. So, you know, I showed up at school every day with kind of this burden of my home life that was just spilled into that space. And so learning never really happened for me, right? I could never focus, I could never engage. But then it was also, you know, I grew up in the poorest neighborhoods and went to the poorest schools, the most under-resourced schools, and the teachers just didn't have the time, the energy, the resources to help me deal with all the problems that I brought to school. So there's a lot going on in that space that got away from the learning. So one of the things that I really, really appreciated when I got into BPI is that the focus was just so academic, right? They put that at the center of the college and said, what we expect from you here is academic excellence. We understand that you have all these other things going on in your day-to-day -day life, especially in the prison context, but if you trust us and you take in this learning and trust yourself and build this confidence, you will find ways to deal with those other things. And through the education, you know, it helped me understand my place in the world, helped me situate my place in the world. And that was really, really empowering and transformative for me. Well, I have to ask about that. You both, Wes and Daiwan, you both talked a lot about the program, what it meant to be in that classroom. And, and we've also talked about identity. But you also grew up, and this is what we hear from people in the film, you know, you had to be hard. You had to be, you had to have this kind of exterior that you couldn't penetrate with feelings because that would leave you vulnerable. And there's a whole different transformation that comes with that as a, as a human being, you know, as you're opening and expanding your mind. How did that manifest? All of those old habits, all of the old ways that you used to deal with things. How do you transform that? I would just say that, you know, that type of change doesn't happen overnight, but it's also embedded in the educational process, especially the college process that we have in this country. I think our college years are formative for all of us, and it was the same thing for me at BPI, right? Beneath and tangential to the academic learning was a total re-socialization process, right? I had to talk and communicate with people that I would not otherwise speak to in the yard. And, you know, the way that I interacted with my fellow students and peers, my colleagues in that context is how I now interact with my coworkers. You know, how I responded to my professors is now how I respond to my bosses at work. And so it was something that was built through time and it was amazing, but it was college, right? Which I think is formative for all of us. Daiwan's experience is important, but I want to just caution about the notion that every person in prison has the same backstory mm -hmm. because we don't. Um, it seems a little bit silly to say now um, just because I think that so many of the country, so many of us in the country are actually this. But I grew up in a working class community. I grew up in a community where 
academic excellence for not only me in my home, but for my peers growing up was instilled in us. We went to school. We were required to do well. Um, the notion of being full human beings was present. We were allowed to be vulnerable. We were allowed to have emotions. And, you know, so I just want to caution that every person who's incarcerated, whether they're in the BPI program or not, has the same backstory with the same nuance to them. Um, I think part of the ways that I have navigated my prison experience and my BPI experience specifically is that I never lost sight of my humanity. And I didn't allow a system that was designed and is implemented to strip you of your identity to do that of me. I stayed connected. I was fortunate enough in that I had family and community support throughout and that I stayed in touch with them and they helped me to maintain myself, my sense of myself. Um, so I, I just want to caution against thinking that we're like monolithic in our experiences and that, you know, we came to the BPI classroom and had this lightning flash happen where we were transformed. Um, we all have diverse stories as to how we ended up in the BPI program, how we ended up in prison and, and how that, you know, manifested in, in how we related to each other, both academically as scholars and as, as people. I just want to piggyback on Wes for a second and say that for Sarah and me and for everyone who worked on this film, we came into this space and project really mm -hmm. just open and curious to get to know the students. And we found the mm -hmm. same thing that Wes is saying. And you've heard from two students here, and there's 12 you get to know in the film. They each have very distinct, particular stories and story arcs and um, ways that they tell their story and family backgrounds. And there's no one sort of one size fits all here at all. Mm -hmm. And I think we hope the film you know, introduces the country and hopefully the world to the multiplicity of experiences that would be true anywhere you shine a light. And you, that it would will encourage and inspire people to reimagine and rethink the landscape, not only of prison, but of education and of race and poverty and the systemic inequities in our country. And that people will watch this film and it will be subtle and explicit and people will walk away, hopefully questioning. Our, our thinking, you know, the space, especially in relation to people and their involvement with the criminal justice system is reductionist. We like to reduce people down to the crimes they have committed. And one of the things that this film does is that it shows how they got to where they are and who they could go on to become. Right. That they do not have to be reduced down to that one bad thing that they had done. And so this really, really important point in the film is that we reframe, you know, thinking around who incarcerated people are in this country and what they are capable of. That is College Behind Bars director Lynn Novick, producer Sarah Botstein, and two of those featured in the film, Daiwan Tetro and Wes Keynes. Again, the four-part documentary series comes out on November 25th on GPB-TV. But before then, there is a free screening event in Atlanta, Tuesday, November 19th. That's at 7. It's going to be in Little Five Points, and it's free, but we would like you to register. Uh, you can find more information about the event and a link to register at gpb.org community. 
And why not leave you with one of the songs featured in the film? This is Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kylie is senior producer. Mary Lynn Ryan is our executive producer. Our theme song is written by Alex Crispin and Marshall Ruffin. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for taking some time to listen to On Second Thought.